My guest today is Michael Girdley. And Michael is the creator of a holds co business. Basically, he holds a bunch of companies together that include fireworks, software, school, coffee chain, and in some, they total more than $100 million. I'm not sure if that's in revenue or, or profits, but I can assume that Michael is a pretty successful guy. He's been in business for over 25 years. And the reason why I had him on is because I stumbled across him on Twitter and this guy has built a following of over 140,000 people in the past two years. And he's really interesting. And we had an incredible conversation. And I've listened to Michael on a bunch of different podcasts and no offense to the other podcasts, but this was Michael in a different form. We talked a lot about business. We started talking about fireworks, but we also talked about why and what the differences are between generations. We spoke about why some of Michael's best ideas and companies come from his leadership group. And this was Michael in a setting that felt a lot more natural. And it was just a a great conversation with somebody now I consider a mentor and a friend. Hopefully Michael considers me the same. And I just really enjoyed getting to know Michael in this way. And if you follow him on Twitter or have heard him on a different podcast before, this is him in a different light from my perspective. This episode is brought to you by My First Million. My First Million is the podcast that I listen to and check out whenever I want to learn more about entrepreneurship, business, which if you're listening to this episode with Michael Girdley, you're probably interested in. So check out My First Million for all of the great stuff on technology and business. My fav- One of my favorite podcasts and in my top listening, I always, I pretty much listen to every single episode. So if you enjoy this one, you'll probably enjoy that one as well. And you can check out the episode Michael was a guest on as a good starting point if you've never listened to that show before. I will also please, please kindly ask you to subscribe wherever you're listening. You're listening on YouTube. I know there's no video version for this episode and I apologize for that. They're coming in strong in 2023, a little upgraded video setup that's coming. But if you're listening on YouTube, if you're listening on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen, please hit the subscribe button. That helps me tremendously because it ensures that you will get new episodes downloaded or brought to you better than any way that I possibly can. So hit that subscribe button wherever you check out the podcast. That would mean the absolute world to me. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. That's all for me. I'm super excited to bring you this episode with Michael. And please let me know your thoughts on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. Okay, let's get into the episode with Michael Girdley. One of the top 100 most influential Texans in 2022. How does that feel? Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. It's a business journal. So they're nice people. And, uh, but it's, it's cool to be there you know, amongst the other 25 San Antonians they picked out. So pretty fun. Yeah. Well, it's, I want to really dive into your story and what you've accomplished in this brief time on your floating rock in space. And I feel like a good place to start might be with the fireworks. Yeah. The fireworks. Tell me about how that 
journey unfolded? Sure. Yeah, so uh, we uh, today own one of the largest, if not the largest, fireworks vendors in the state of Texas. So um, that all actually started when my grandfather came back from World War II. Uh, They had choices about where they wanted to live, um, and they originally spending time in Kansas. My grandfather was born um, in a little tiny town east of Dallas called Wilkes Point, which is just where like two railroads stop. (laughs) It's pretty small. Um, And uh, so he had met my grandmother during the war, and they were out in California because he was in the Pacific, and decided that uh, they wanted to go someplace warmer, and they liked the attitude of San Antonio. It's a different kind of place compared to other places in the United States. So her uncle had been in the fireworks business, or her her brother had been in the fireworks business, so my dad's uncle. And uh, his name was H.P. Cannon, and so... They came back after the war and uh, started like becoming a dealer in fireworks. They would go to China, and my grandfather was the first person to import fireworks from China directly into the state of Texas. So pretty fun. And uh, so you know, my grandfather was this awesome guy who was much more concerned about being everybody's friend and being that life of the party than he was being like very competitive, which is different than how his like you know, my father and then me, like I'm hyper competitive, like different than how we all came out. So he came back and he started being a, what was called a jobber. So you'd import fireworks and you'd sell them to retailers. Um, And then my father got into the business in the seventies when they had about a dozen locations. And so he did it for going on close to 30 years and then got close to 60 around 2003, 2004. And that was when I was living in California and said, hey, would you like to come back and run this business because I'm sick of working. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. So at the time I wanted to leave California, I'd been sick of working for other people and I wanted to be entrepreneurial. And I was kind of sick of being in California. I was kind of bored of it. And my wife didn't like, didn't like the cold aspect of San Francisco. So I was like, I know a place where it's really hot, like Africa hot, like super hot. And so we moved back here and then I ran that business for about a decade. And that was really my first CEO job. And um, anyway, I can go different directions than that. I can tell you how the fireworks business works, uh, which is a fascinating thing. But it was also like, as I look back on it, it was like the most amazing training ground for learning how like where the rubber hits the road type business because it's so hard. Like it's every other business I'm in feels like easy mode compared to fireworks. Why is that? Um, Okay, so fireworks is this hugely seasonal business. And when it's seasonal, a lot of things kind of spiral to make it very difficult for you, right? So, you know, a normal business, let's say you're doing like a property management business, like every month is same as the previous one. There might be a little bit of seasonality, but by and large, like you wake up one day, you fill tenants and spaces, you make sure, you know, sinks get unplugged and you do that the next day. And it's pretty easy to run a business that just runs like one day, same as the next, right? You have quarterly feedback cycles and all that kind of stuff. And also, you have a situation where because you're running those kind of businesses like like a normal business, like your information loop is quicker, right? Like have you heard of like OODA loops and stuff like that? You could explain it for people yeah, yeah. who might not be familiar. So yeah, it's a military call. It's just this idea of, well, maybe since you know, I may, I may brutalize it, but it's this military idea of you go through four steps in terms of gathering data, orienting, making a decision, and then acting on them. And that's an OODA loop. It was put together by this guy who was a, well, how'd you describe him? He was like a, a thought theorist, you know, a decision, decision theorist inside of the military. And he figured out that the organizations that do those OODA loops the fastest were the quickest learning organizations, and then they won. So the problem with a seasonal business like Fireworks, where maybe you're selling once 
every 4th of July, or in our case, we sell here in this market twice a year, New Year's and 4th of July, like your feedback loop, there's nothing you can do to shorten it from a year, Mm. right? Like what you learn right now on the 4th of July, you can't apply that for a whole nother year. And like that becomes super difficult in terms of running your business. It's seasonal, so it goes way down, way up. And then the cash flow kind of sucks because like right now we're selling fireworks here in the state of Texas. We started December the 20th. We legally can't sell after midnight on January the 1st. So we won't have any revenue come in until June of next year. So you like have to figure out how to be capitalized through that whole situation. So it's very fascinating. Oh my God. So what the first thing that comes to mind for me is that it's funny or interesting how July 4th and New Year's are the two times that fireworks are allowed to exist. Yeah. But why don't fireworks companies try to figure out ways in March and September to also make a profit? Yeah. So there's a couple different things. Um, Trust me that every single fireworks vendor has tried. (laughs) Like we tried to get into the Halloween business for a while, and I can tell you the dynamics there that make it very difficult. Uh, people try to get into roses. They try to get into Easter stuff. Like all of those things are just, just very difficult. And you have that combined with, it's tough to do those things. And then on top of it, it's like, there's a significant opportunity cost. So like, you know, you're going to go get into Halloween and every, every fireworks vendor got into Halloween, fireworks vendor got into Halloween and then got out of Halloween. Like the last holdout that I just knew he had been like the past couple of years been like, Hey, like, you know, we've got this Halloween thing figured out. And then I talked to him like a month ago and he's like, yeah, we gave up on that. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a good idea. I was like, I could have told you that. Um, but yeah, so, and then there's the opportunity cost, which is, would you be better off just going to open one more fireworks location that you know how to do that really well? And you can make a lot of money doing that. Or do you want to go jack around with, maybe trying to figure out how to sell Halloween costumes and compete against spirit. Like in the end, it just doesn't make a lot of sense from a focus perspective as well. Makes sense. What was your, what was the initial inclination to sell fireworks? For my grandparents? Exactly. Like (laughs) way down the line. Like I'm just thinking like, like what was that the Instagram or Twitter of the day? Like, let let me get exciting. Yeah. Informate. Like, let me bring entertainment to people. Yeah. Well, is it different? You know, I'm a little older now, I'm 47. So mm-hmm. like, I remember a time in which we were still like faxing stuff. But even before that, like, like my grandfather grew up in a time, you know, when television, I mean, much less that device you have right there, like it didn't even exist. So they were trying to find entertainment any way they could, you know, like they were drinking heavily. They were like doing whatever they could. They were having lots more in-person parties. My grandparents used to have these rager parties. Like we'd hear about them. Oh like, my God. yeah, they had like one of those, it was the coolest thing when we, after they passed away, we cleaned out their house. And they had like this crazy, like one of those organs, like playing organs, because they were just like back then there was it wasn't like you could put on, you know, a dance mix. Right. Like back then you had to like put some paper into this thing and like it would blow little holes through and it would play organ music and everybody would get, you know, drink 14 martinis. And that's that's how it go. So, you know, I mean, but ultimately, like fireworks are fun. Like it's and I, I like them a lot because of two reasons. One is it really is like one of the last pure things that when you go see what people do with fireworks, they like go out as a family. Mm. Like it's something everybody can do. Like the little grandmother sits on her chair and she talks with the grandkids and like the teenagers are out there doing stuff and like lighting fireworks or running around. Like it's one of the kind of the last cheap, all family entertainment things. And so it's really great. Cause I mean, that's basically what our business does. Like we have, we have this thing called the happy memory guarantee where if you don't have good memories, 
from coming and sh- shopping and then using the products, like come talk to us and we'll make it right. And like, that's, I think the core kind of beautiful thing we figured out about the business is we're not really in the fireworks business. We're in the, how do we help you make like happy memories by, and fireworks are just the tool of that. Um, and the other thing, I think the world needs a bit more opportunities for people to kind of push the edge a little bit. And even if you have like the, the simulation of danger, right? Kind of the roller coaster thing where you're like, well, what happens if something happens to this roller coaster? Well, it's probably safer than you were driving over. And fireworks are kind of like that too. You really have to work with modern fireworks to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Like whenever you hear somebody hurt themselves, it's usually because they were a complete and total idiot, mm-hmm. you know, like every single time. So like, I think the world needs more of those type of things. Like it's one of the complaints I have about like modern playgrounds. Have you ever noticed modern playgrounds are like super boring? No. I yeah. haven't spent a lot of time there. Yeah, they're super boring. <laughs> like like when I was a kid, literally, literally when I was a kid in the 80s, the playground, they had a world, uh, like an old rusty World War II airplane that they just took and let rust in the playground. That was our playground. And like, I remember getting into it one day and I was like, this doesn't seem very safe. There's like shards of glass everywhere. And, um, and we were fine because we were like Gen X or like, okay, we'll take care of ourselves. But one day I looked in there and there was like a black widow spider, like six inches across. And I was like, yes, this is why my generation is so tough. This is beautiful. (laughs) But it's kind of also why like a lot of parks are and playgrounds are so boring and kids aren't that excited. It's because, well, you know, the world needs a little more danger, at least illusion of danger Mm. in my opinion. That's an interesting take. I want to go back to the, the business aspect of it. And it was easy, I'm sure to have a fireworks business and be like, I'm going to stay in this fireworks business forever. Yeah. Why do you look further? Why do you go beyond fireworks? Yeah. What, what was the first step into the unknown of the next business? Sure. Well, I think some of it's just the way I'm wired, right? Like I think one of the core kind of drivers I have is just this idea of always wanting to do stuff, higher leverage, like on maximize things. Right. And like, we talked about like my thread this morning with Twitter, like, like I'm getting kind of pooped on because like I, I wrote this thread that's like, here's how I've spent the last two years, like totally optimizing my AV setup for zoom. And people are like, you're a loser. I was like, well, actually, yeah, but, but that's just this kind of higher leverage nature that I have. Like I'm, the second I see, like I have to do some work, I'm like, how do I do less work or how do I make this better? Or how do I figure out how to make this higher leverage? And that's really just a core, like of how I'm wired. And I mean, I think, and I like to think that a lot of that comes from humility of realizing the things I just suck at, right? Like I'm just totally comfortable being bad at things and also not liking things. And I remember a time when I was running our family business and I was a CEO and I'd been doing it for five years and I couldn't figure out why I was unhappy. And I went on a three week vacation and I came back and everything ran better than when I'd been running the company. Like, I was like, man, like, I think the universe is trying to tell me something. I may not be very good at this, you know? And I think everybody has this idea that you as an entrepreneur, like, or a podcast host or anything, like you're the absolute best. Like you're destined to be the best person in the world to run this business. And I think at that moment I had the realization, I was like, man, I may not be as good as I think I am. <laughs> and, and that really presented an opportunity. I think a relative amount of freedom where I could say, oh, if I'm wired to want to do this higher leverage stuff and I know what I really like to work on, like, why am I forcing myself necessarily to do something that probably somebody else could do better than me? Mm-hmm. And I could just spend my time making them really successful. And that was, that was the genesis of kind of going from, okay, how do I just have one kind of bet of a company, you know, in my ownership portfolio to this kind of multiple like ownership idea. So what was the next step you took? Uh, the next step was uh, I was a wimp. 
I didn't actually quit the first job, but in parallel, I started to carve out a few days a week to, um, to build a second company. And the reason I found out about that opportunity was I spent, started to spend time here just right across town at a place called Geekdom, um, which is a co-working space, but really it's not a co-working space. It's designed actually as a place to bring together kind of like-minded entrepreneurial people. And I just started going to spend like one day a week there. And I take my laptop over and like just hang out and like try to find other like-minded entrepreneurial folks who were maybe trying to figure out the rest of their life too. And, um, and I, I was like, well, like best way to learn stuff, I'm going to start doing things. So I started like writing angel checks and I started like, you know, being stupid and like trying ideas and getting people's feedback on them, just trying to go make things happen and, and give to the community and see what happens. And I kept talking to people over and over again. And like, everybody was like, we can't hire software developers in San Antonio. I was like, okay, well, that's pretty interesting. And I just, I, I just stored that away. And then I read about this company in, and this is the emergence of kind of coding boot camps. I read about a company in Seattle that was doing it. And I was like, I could do better than that. So we just copied them. Um, <laughs> and we started a business here called CodeUp. And I was CEO of both companies for a period of time, um, getting that off the ground. So I invested money, I recruited a couple of co-founders and we like started to start a business, started to take people's money and give them value. I love how you've said before that a great entrepreneur mixes curiosity and humility. Yeah. And it's like, that's what you were doing in building that second business. Yeah. I agree with that hundred <laughs> percent. When I said that, it sounds really smart. <laughs> it is smart. <laughs> yeah. So like, I guess w- what gave you the confidence to, uh, go for the next, you, you said, or you wanted to go for a- another opportunity and it's like, you said you were a wimp. So like, how do you not become a wimp? Yeah. It's like, um, I don't, I don't know a great way to, to fix it other than mindfulness. Right. And like, like this idea that like as a younger person, and I guess we're going to hopefully talk sometime, sometime today about like mistakes I wish I hadn't made when I was younger, but like, like there's this whole thing of like kind of spotlight bias and like worrying about what other people think or like, are, are you going to be a failure? And like eventually and too slowly, I think I just, I got to a point where I was just like, wait, none of that really matters. Like, I don't really care what anybody thinks. Like if I'm a failure, so what? I'll just get back up and do it again. Like, what age? Uh, oh, I wish I'd done that in my early twenties, but it took me until my late, late mid thirties to come to that realization. Um, and I'm kind of like embarrassed about it now. It's like, <laughs> so, why? Um, cause it seems so stupid in retrospect that, you know, that I'm just like, I wish I wish I had known that in my late twenties because I feel like I would be a lot further ahead than I am right now. What could you have done to expedite that process? Um, I mean, it, to me, it's just broken thought patterns, right? Like, I just wish I'd have had a level of kind of self confidence that it just took me too long to get right. Just like there's this, and, and I'm trying to articulate it, like this level of introspection about you know, mindfulness about saying, okay, I'm seeing my, my mind or my emotions drag me this way. And there are times now where it's like imposter syndrome is a great example. Like people are like, what's the, what's the answer to imposter syndrome? Well, to me, the imposter answer to imposter syndrome is you being mindful enough to say, that's my monkey mind trying to teach me or tell me to do something that's not in my best interest. Like mm-hmm. nobody really cares if I'm an imposter because I'm not an imposter. Everybody's an imposter, um, which means nobody is. And so it's an idea here where it's like, it took me that long to really get 
comfortable enough to be mindful to not be scared of all those things. And I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm talking in circles or not, but that's how I think about it now. It's just like, oh, the way to get past that stuff is to recognize how you want to think about things and then tell your brain, this is how I'm going to think about things. And you just stick to it and be courageous. Yeah. So what would you say if your son or daughter came to you and was like, okay, like, I don't think I'm good enough or I'm scared of what other people think. Like, what's the advice that you give to them? Yeah. Well, they're, my kids are 17 so <laughs> and 13, so they don't ask for advice. They Fair. still think I'm a moron. <laughs> so it's totally fine. Um, but they Let's gotta, say they're 25. Yeah, 25. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth, in, th- in that situation, I would really sit down and talk about, like, let's, let's understand how, how and why you're thinking about it this way. Like, tell me why, why you're worried about that stuff. And then, you know, I would really try to understand the foundation of where they're coming from. Um, but in parallel, be accepting of it. Like, I think, I think this is one thing we should definitely talk about as a theme is the thing I hate the most about like 47 year old dude life advice to 25 year old dude life advice. And how old are you now? I'm so sorry. 27, 27. Yeah. 47. Like it's so annoying. Like, like so many times I hear like this middle-aged guy life advice, you know, it's like, and look, like, here's my situation. I've got like some W's under my belt. I'm middle-aged, I'm a middle-aged white dude in America. Like things are pretty good. Okay. Um, you know, like, it's easy for me to be like, don't care about what people think. Well, like, yeah, of course. So that's what's so annoying is like so many times, like you get these middle-aged white guy life advice and it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to tell you just be courageous. Like, or yeah, don't worry about that. Nobody cares. Well, actually it's different when you're 27, you know, that's, so that's kind of one of the things whenever I'm like talking to my son or, you know, my younger son who's 13, like, you know, I'm going to be, I want to be very mindful to understand where they are in life because it's radically different. And I think it's one of the biggest danger things that people at my stage in life do, which is like, give you advice like 47 year old me should hear. Right. And that's totally different. Like me expecting to have empathy for where you are in life. Like, ugh, like it's just so annoying. So yeah. I know I understand that, but it's interesting how the problems at different stages of our life seem so important at that stage. But today, upon reflection, you realize how insignificant it is. Like I, I often think about like popularity in high school or middle right. school and how that seemed like the end of the world. Yeah. And then you look back on it and you're 27, you're like, oh, that was no big deal. And it also makes me think about the things that I find important right now, like this podcast, like maybe in 10 years when I have children, I won't really care about the success or the people I talk to, like it'll just be extra. Yeah. So what, what's your take on that as a 47 year old white guy? Uh, it, yeah, none of it matters. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting um, and very liberating is you start to watch your parents and grandparents get older, right? Um, how, how old, do, you, do you have live grandparents now? Yeah, I do. I'm very grateful that they're 82 and 85. Right. So, uh, but are were you, let's see, so you would have been a teenager when they were in their like early mid 70s. So you haven't really known them as young, virile people. No, actually my grandparents are both young Vero, like even at their current for, age for, 80 yeah. for, for 85 and 82. And like my grandpa ran marathons and my grandma is full of energy and love. And so that's great. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so thanks for ruining my example. No, but, no, no. <laughs> but I, I got to give them a shout out. Yeah, yeah, gotta, they, they sound awesome. They sound are. like you're great, great genetics, but it's also, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? You, you kind of day by day, watch these people going from, you know, you know, your dad, you know, everybody's dad at one point is the strongest he-man in the universe. Yes. And then next thing you know, it's like seeing him in the hospital bed. And I remember that with my grandfather, right? Like I remember 
I was 17, 18 years old and I, he was, he was the strongest man in my life. Like he was the last of like nine kids in a West Texas ranch. Like, you know, he was a uh, and uh, A&M college football, wow. you know, quarterback. Then they had, broke his shoulder, all this stuff, went to World War II, all this kind of stuff. And it was like the strongest man I knew. And I remember being like a, a young teenager and walking in and seeing him in the hospital. He had just had a heart attack. And it was the beginning of the end for him. Like he went through a, a slow decline and died in his early 70s. And, you know, I think there's there's a liberation that comes kind of watching the generations and seeing the mortality there. And then the other thing is, you know, in your late forties, early fifties and on into your sixties, like you start to see the wheels coming off my bus, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, three years ago, I lost 90% of the hearing in one of my ears. It's just, it's called sudden deafness. It just happens. And they don't know why. Um, two weeks ago I was in the hospital, right? And it's just like, well, what happened? I had a GI bug. Well, it put me in the hospital. So you start to see like things are, it's the inevitable decline and it starts, I see, I see that coming like that, that whole thing. So anyway, I didn't mean to go super more, but no, but you, I believe you asked the 65 year old what advice or what he learned from 50 to 65. Yeah. And his response was we're mortal. Yeah. That's what, that was it. Yeah. Like I asked and I thought, well, maybe it was just this guy, but like I asked like three or four of them because like my learning as a human, like business wise like from like 37 to 47, that was, that's the, I, I look at the Delta of me to then to now and it's enormous, like my toolkit. And like, I feel like I keep accelerating. And, um, and so I was like, okay, I'm so excited. Like what's the next frontier? What am I going to learn? And so I started asking all these like 60 mid 60 year old guys. Um, and it was all guys cause those are my business colleagues, but, and, uh, yeah, they all said the same thing. They were like, no, you kind of stop learning. You just get old. You start to learn you're going to die someday. And I was like, wow. Okay. This is why they spend $3 million on vacation homes. Like this because <laughs> they're, they see the end coming and they're like, well, what else are they going to do with the money? Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So like you mentioned the huge difference between yourself at 47 and 37 as a businessman. What are some of the biggest things that you learned in that time? Yeah. Look, I think as, um, as somebody in my late thirties, uh, I was definitely like, um, much more comfortable talking over people. Like, um, there was a lot of times where I was the smartest, smartest guy in the room. Uh, and maybe it was true, but anyway, uh, I'm not dumb, but anyway, so, you know, I would do that. Um, you know, I would be okay, uh, intellectually pummeling people and picking on them. You know, I think there were things that I would do there. Um, you know, I think I had much lower kind of empathy and sympathy for other people uh, as well in, in business type situations. Um, and probably last thing I would add, like, uh, man, I sound like a terrible 30 something, huh? But, uh, you know, I think kind of the, there was, there was a, a need for me to have more self-confidence in order to be a better supporter of leaders, if that makes sense, right? Like, like, in, until you're comfortable really being in your own shoes and feeling like you don't have something to prove, it's very difficult for you to be the person behind the guy. Right. And like in my early forties, like I made a transition where I didn't feel like I needed to control things anymore. I didn't feel like I had something to prove as the leader of companies. And like, I feel like I'm much more happy with somebody else being in the hot seat and helping them be their best rather than trying to, like have something to prove. Right. And I was like, I've been CEO a couple of times. Like I know how to do it, whatever. Like, like the other thing I want to prove, maybe it's not to prove, but 
I want, I want to be the best person to support those leaders to be the best people they can be and to achieve their goals. And that's much more inspiring to me, but it wasn't that way in my late thirties. Like I still felt like I had something to do. It's funny because I talked to Corey Allen recently Mm -hmm. and he said at 35, I stopped taking myself so seriously. And it sounds like that transition happened for you between 37 and, and 42 as well. Yeah. I don't know. I've always been kind of a chuckle bunny. So what does that mean? <laughs> Just kind of a goofball, you know, like it's the, uh, you know, there's a few things I take super seriously, uh, a lot of core value stuff. Uh, but then other than that, like it's just level, you know, like I try to keep my mood just very much like not, not too high, not too low. Something goes good. I don't take much stock in it. Something goes bad. It's just another day. You move on. Yeah. So I don't know that. You know, I see people that go through their life like very roller coastery, and I'm like, this, I don't see how that's fun. Mm. Just chill. <laughs> you mentioned core values before and how that's important to you. You're, you, you've put out on Twitter about the importance of putting out an annual reflection of some sort yeah. where you, you kind of have to go through your values if you're going to reflect. And since this episode is coming out in the last week of December, I figured it would be a good practice to talk about what are some of the things you reflect on and what are some of the values that you make sure are most important to you as you enter the new year? Yeah, hundred percent. So it's interesting about how I think I figured out what my kind of core values are. It's, I started to watch the things that people would accuse me of or insinuate about me. And I would get and the things that super duper bothered me. Mm. It's like, the triggers the uh, yeah like if you said if you said hey michael you're you're kind of lazy right i'd be like yeah that's pretty true like <laughs> i don't i like to i like to accomplish things but i don't like to work you know i want to work the absolute highest leverage way to get there right mm-hmm. uh hey michael you know you hey michael you're um you're somebody who's not true to his word uh, like i can feel i felt just the emotional response to me saying that about myself, that that would make me the angriest ever. And like, I would just be like, no, no, that's not the way that's going to be. That's not the way we operate. Right. Mm. So like, that's how I started to discover kind of what my own core values were as I would listen to my body and my emotions of how I would react. And which is kind of a messed up thing because a lot of the times the universe is like, everybody's telling you like, Oh, don't listen to your emotions. Like don't be an emotional person. Like, and I just think it's such a load of horseshit. So <laughs> anyway, so that's how I've kind of figured out what my core values are. Like, and it's a lot of this pretty straightforward stuff. Like, you know, be true to your word, like be a dependable person. Like if you told me I'm not dependable, like podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> so you showed anyway. up here on time. So yeah. that's pretty uh, dependable. Dude, it was close. <laughs> I found like three things to distract myself with before I left the office. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I think about my core values and, and the kind of way I encourage other people to think about it is like, what are the things that get you so mad if somebody were to accuse you about? And hmm. then those are really your unique core values. Um, but in terms of the reflection exercise, like, you know, for me, for me, I'm not great remembering details on anything. So like to compensate for that, like I design and automate things. Like I want to have systems and I want them to just work. And sometimes that system is the right person in the right role. But other times it's like, okay, like once a year, it's going to pop up in my inbox and I need to fill out this sheet. Mm-hmm. And that's how I go about doing the reflection stuff. And different people like to do it different ways. But I have basically a one and a half page sheet, which has about eight or nine questions on it. And it talks about some of my wins and some of my losses. And, and a lot of times, like, I'm such a forward thinking kind of thinker. Like, I'll have to go back through my calendar and be like, what happened in January? 
did I actually do any work? Yeah, yeah, that was good. Okay, put that down as a win. And then, and then what that does is it ties me back into the practice of what happened last year. And then I worked my way all the way back to kind of what do I think is going right and wrong in terms of my day-to-day and the things I'm doing, and then what's really important going forward. So it's just kind of this segue from the end of a year to, okay, I'm going to start thinking about 2023, and I'm going to run my planning process for how I'm going to do the next year as well. And when you look at that whole process, what is the number one thing that sticks out to you from doing it? Yeah. Um, the thing I think people don't ask themselves a lot, which I think is the most powerful question is like, what is my, it asks you, what is your why? Like, what why, is your why? Yeah. Like, why are you here? Like what really drives you? And for me, like it, it, a lot of times I've discovered those type of questions are very difficult, right? Like you can take years to try to figure them out. Um, and it's one of the nice things about being late forties. If you think about stuff for 10 years is if you work on stuff for kind of 10 years, eventually you look up and you're like, oh yeah, like I figured this out. Like, and for me, like, if you look at everything that I enjoy doing, it's creating opportunities for other people. Like I partner in everything. Like that is, that is the core why of why I create stuff. Like I want to create joy for other people. Mm. And I do that by creating opportunities for them. Like we started a coding bootcamp. Well, what does it do? It helps people change their lives by getting jobs, right? Like I've twisted fireworks into a way that's like, no, no, we're not in the, we're not in the fireworks business guys. We're in the memory business. Right. <laughs> so like you see that theme kind of happens over and over again, or the, like the coworking space we started here like it was like it's an opportunity for people to like be part of a community right like all that kind of stuff so but yeah like understanding what your why is and like why are you doing things and like why do you really exist and what drives you like that's that best question and that cheat for me what do you recommend that somebody ask themselves or what do you recommend people do if they're struggling to figure out their own why yeah i think there's a couple things to do number one is um, time in the saddle, like really matters, like start doing the things that you're passionate about and the things that you end up with. And then you can really start to see the patterns there. And it's one of the gifts of being older is you're like, Oh, like, you know, like I've tried three different times to learn how to be a guitar player and it's not been fun any of those times. Well, it turns out I just actually don't like that. Right. <laughs> so it's one of the nice things about like, I have no music talent whatsoever. Um, there's one of the nice things about getting older, but I think that's like the thing I encourage people to do. Like just be yourself be true to yourself and then watch where those patterns come out and start to see. And then also, I think the second thing that's really helpful if you can afford it for sure is like having coaches on the side that Mm. can start to help you kind of see the blind spots that you're missing. So I've been really, as I talked about that kind of last decade being like a super period of growth for me, it's when I became open to coaching and Mm. development. Like I joined a CEO peer group, like I meet monthly with my coach, like he tells me, Hey, do you know what I've noticed this pattern of stuff you're doing? Or do you know which, you know, which things do you enjoy working on? And I was like, well, I enjoy this one, this one, this one. And I hate this one, this one, this one. He's like, do you know what the pattern is there? I was like, no, tell me. (laughs) Like, so that kind of coaching is another thing to do. And you can get that from peers or you can get that from the internet or, or I think the best is to have somebody that's like a professional coach. If you can afford it, like they're and willing to give you, you know, tough feedback and tough love. And then you actually ended up starting a company with somebody that you met in one of these peer groups, right? Um, multiple times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because like, I'm the guy who's always like, I have more ideas than sense, right? So I'm like, hey, do you want to start a coffee company? <laughs> and I started a coffee company. And then, then in a, I'm business partners with um, another guy who's uh, in my group. And you know, we told everybody, hey, we're going to start this business together. So he and I did a private equity deal 18 months ago. So created really the 
well, I guess now the biggest private tech company in San Antonio, we bought a bunch of stuff and moved it here. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty standard. You know, what's interesting about you is that it sounds really cool to own a bunch of different businesses. And I think sometimes people might try to go at that because they think it looks cool or sounds cool to other people. But from diving into your story and doing research and hearing you, it's just clear you like starting businesses and you would do it whether people didn't think it was cool or they thought it was amazing. Like it's just inherent to you. Yeah. And I think that's an important piece to note. Yeah. Well, I think there's for sure to double click on that. I think there's, there's two things. Um, one is there's the, there's the enjoying the activities that you do. And that's kind of the algorithm I figured out too late in life, which is if you really want to know what your calling is going to be, don't focus on like the idea or the name of it. Like I'm going to be a real estate broker. Well, actually like, think about the activities you really enjoy the most. And like, I realized like I enjoy creating, like I enjoy working on interesting problems. Like I, I like to be in a creative space. Like I like to work with great people that I get to choose who I work with. Like I love people, just the right people. And like, once I saw that that was kind of the things that I enjoyed the most, then I said, okay, well, what kind of career do I want to have? And it just happens that owning multiple businesses goes really well with what I like to do. But then, and then the second part is like, what are you wired to do? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and I have this kind of fundamental idea that every personality is wired differently. And that doesn't mean there's any one right or one wrong role for, for in general, it means just for an individual person, like there's things that you're meant to do. Right. Um, There are people that are people, people. I like people. I just don't like them as much as other people like people like, so, but going, like going to a cocktail party is like the worst thing. Like I get that, that is a huge anxiety thing for me. I'm just really? not interested in going. What's, no. what's going on there? Uh, so I don't like, um, well, it's, it's actually gotten even worse, um, with my hearing stuff, but I don't like unstructured, uh, social interactions. I love meetings. I have meetings all day long objective, rules of the road, very structured, no anxiety there whatsoever. Like I can have meetings all day or like a dinner party, just like, okay, structured, here's how it's going to work. And then 8.30, we're out of there, right? That That's very good. But the prospect of navigating like the whole universe of like people at a cocktail party, like that's a totally different type social scenario. And I, I can't stand it. Um, I will go to them because sometimes you have to, like you own a company and they're like, Hey, we need you to show up to this. And I will go there. Yes. Hello, Mr. President. Um, you're Mr. President. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we should also dig into that. That's, you know, there's the downside of being the 47 year old white guy, but the, um, but so anyway, I think I just lost, lost my train of thought on the, I had a good point, but the social anxiety. Oh of- yeah. 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 So Anyway, so there's that kind of free form social stuff. It's not there. And then it's gotten worse because of my hearing. There will be times where like at a bar or a cocktail party or whatever, I cannot hear a thing being said because I only have one functioning ear. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you're sitting there and people are talking to you and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And and I wish it had like the Google Meet subtitles. (laughs) What the hell are they saying, dear? Um, And I'll just, sometimes I'll just turn to my wife and I'll just be like, look, I, this is getting too much anxiety for me. I just need to go. And anyway. I'm Gen X, so we don't usually talk like that, but <laughs> it's understandable. Uh, so wait, so you mentioned before about the downsides of being president or the downsides of of being middle-aged white guy. What what do you, how do you phrase that exactly? Uh, look, I, I don't want to be elitist about the whole thing. So like, but it's, it, it's one of the things that's been surprising to me as you start to become C-level whatever or founder of XYZ or whatever in terms of the hierarchy of of human kind of social strata. Um, 
or there'll be times where like I just run into anybody, right? And it's like, hey, we're just normal people, you know? And and it's like you and I are like, I think connecting very well and you're awesome and you're fearless and all that kind of stuff. But there are times when like like literally I had a, a mentoring session with some with a twenty something couple earlier this week and we spent the first fifteen minutes just trying to calm them down because they were just intimidated. Right. And it by you. By me. Yeah. And it's like, well, don't be. Like <laughs> I you know, I change diapers just like everybody else does. Like it's just perfectly normal. Um, but then the other thing that's been really surprising is I've learned that there are meetings and things like in companies or whatever in those social strata that I just can't go to because I ruined the meeting by being there. What do you mean by that? Like, like for example, like if you're the chairman of the board and you show up at a CEO's meeting, okay, everybody knows how the hierarchy works. In theory, they think you're the CEO's boss, mm. even though in practice, like I'm in there kissing the CEO's butt because I want to stay in the job. But, um, but like, yeah, our, our job as the board is to hire and fire the CEO and compensate them and make the ultimate decisions on the company. But really, like, we, we see ourselves, and I see myself when I'm on a board, as supporting that CEO. So right. I don't see them as anything other than a peer. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how I see it. I see as partnership, our partners in the way of doing this. And sometimes we have to put on our, you know, our hire, fire, manage hat, right? Um, but then, like, if I show up to a meeting, like, let's say I go to the CEO staff meeting, when you're the chairman of the board... You think that you're just one of the guys or yeah. one of the gals, right? Um, or one of the theys. But, um, you know, trying try to totally be, you know, whatever. But uh, but it's not. Like, you'll be in that situation and, like, you actually, like, ruin the meeting. It's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Like, you ruin the meeting by just being there. Mm. Um, and I used to, early on, when I would get into multiple company ownership, like, I would be the chairman. They'd be like, well, why don't you come to our staff meeting? It'll be so helpful. And now I'm like... Not going, yeah. not going to be helpful because I would ruin the meeting. Because you think about just from a social dynamic, what happens when the CEO's boss shows up? Everybody suddenly becomes very differential um, to the CEO or they won't say what's really on their mind or they whitewash it because I may not have the whole story. Like it ruined the meetings wow. and it does it over and over again. So there's, I just don't go to the meetings. It's fascinating how like when social standing changes, how humans interact differently. And I don't know, I don't, like, it's just, it's wild to think about because I think we would inherently do this as well. Like if a person we really look up to or, or admire, like Warren Buffett is right here, yeah. you're, you're going to be like, wait, this is crazy. And so somebody is viewing you in the same light. And so it's just an interesting thing. I don't know where it stems from and I don't know how to get over it. And I don't know, but I think having more conversations with people is one way to do it because yeah. you realize the similarities between people you realize this is just a human being. Yeah. It's just Mark Cuban or Warren Buffett or yeah. whatever. He just, is, just poops like everybody else does. Right. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. And I think it comes back to this idea of being mindfulness. Like that's the one thing, like I, I wish I had had that earlier in my life and really practiced it more, which is being okay saying like my monkey brain is telling me to do this or my monkey brain is telling me like I should be intimidated by this person. And I've been guilty of it a tons of times where I show up and I'm just not, I'm like this person that I'm not even this person because I'm so intimidated by this other person. And I'm like, wait, why am I intimidated by this person? Like, I don't care. <laughs> and so like, yeah, okay. Now the other side of that is I'm like, okay, well, you know, have some W, you know, it's the, the 47 year old white guy problem. It's like, well, yeah, it's easy for me to say, like, just don't worry about that. Yeah. You just don't worry about it. Then I don't know the right answer. Maybe it's just one of those things in life that's just broken. Yeah. <laughs> or you just got to live long enough to have enough wins to realize that everyone is, is capable. Yeah. 
talk to me about the going to Berkshire Hathaway, the general meeting. And I, this is how I stumbled across your Twitter. You were live tweeting the entire thing. I was like, who is this guy who is giving a, like a minute by minute update on what's going on? I never, it was never a dream of mine to go. I'm not yeah. 40 year old and white. I'm just 27. So it wasn't, wasn't like I was thinking about it, but I was like, wow, this is fascinating. It's like a concert. It's like religion all yeah. mixed into one, it sounds like. Yeah. And I really got a good understanding. It felt like from just reading your tweets as a journalist, you were. So oh, thank yeah. you for, for informing me. And yeah. what was that experience like for you? Um, it was great. Um, and this happens to me sometimes where like, like I went on a food tour in Paris with, with my, with my wife and like, I'll just kind of stumble into something. I'm like, I've got to live tweet this. By the way, I do have a draft thread that my wife won't let me publish, which was when we went to the mall together and she's like, you can't publish that. I was like, okay, I won't, but it's pretty good. I got, I got a here off camera at least. Uh, well, it's just like, I mean, there's just so many weird things in the mall that nobody really talks about. And like, you know, we're spending time in Nordstrom's or whatever. And I'm like, like you walk past and you're like, who is ever going to buy this? Like, it's like a, it was like a, one of them was like a beret with like rhinestone, like leather beret with rhinestone, like metal studs on it. And I was like, who's going to buy this? You know, it's so funny that you say that because I was driving here on the way to San Antonio and I got a, there's a billboard that's like. 1-800-BUTT-LIFT. And I'm like, I am just not the target customer for this. They must be making money. But like, oh my God, this is crazy that that's a service or yeah. that's something that people are actually putting out there. Yeah. The doctors the doctors all joke about it, especially like the pediatricians. They'll be like, you know, if you really wanted to make some money, you go like become one of those plastics. <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> so anyway, my buddy is a plastic surgeon. He's got like four motorcycles. So whatever. <laughs> he must be doing well. <laughs> yeah, he's doing pretty good. He's hilarious. So uh, back to Berkshire. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think from uh, butt lifts to Berkshire. Yeah, butt lifts to Berkshire. Look, I think I think it's something to do at least once once in life. And one of my big regrets um, from the '90s was, you know, I never went to go see The Grateful Dead before Jerry Garcia passed away. And I kind of felt like that was this was my year for Berkshire Hathaway. Like Charlie Munger's getting in his late '90s, and like he's an awesome guy to to hear speak and. Uh, and Warren getting to see the show. And then the most fun thing about going to Berkshire Hathaway is just all the people that go there. Right. And it's like, you know, I think we're going to talk a bit about this as a theme, like, like what used to be the Catholic church and this whole idea of religion has gotten radically fragmented. And some people have decided to go Berkshire Hathaway and you'll see it like these people, like it's like a religious fervor in terms of how they think about their trust in Warren and Charlie and Berkshire Hathaway. And they're in there shopping and buying dilly bars and doing all this stuff, taking pictures and eating up the whole thing. And then you've seen other people who've replaced religion with their love of Elon and Tesla. Right. And they, and if you replace the way they talk about Elon or the way they talk about Warren with Jesus, like it all totally makes sense. Like (laughs) it just all fits in there. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think people want to belong to something and an idea bigger than themselves. And it was great to go there and just be like, wow, this is what it's like, like going to a mega church. Like it's kind of like exactly that. What'd you learn? Like it was just the religion. That was the big takeaway that you got, or is there anything else? I think that was there. I mean, I think I was really surprised also with how much that has become a convention for people to spend time with each other Mm. and like connect over that type of, you know, compounding wealth 
and being patient and thinking about things with a lot of fundamentals. I think that was really interesting. Like I ran into one of my buddies who I knew from college and he had, it turned out he had been going there for going on 20 years now and they would go every year and they would go to the same steakhouse and they would go to the meeting and they would get together and talk about their investments. And it was kind of beautiful to see how it had become like, not just one way, you know, with Berkshire to them, but also like their peer, you know, a peer group type thing as well. I think the other thing that was super fascinating, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd about kind of watching generational differences and you hear me talking about Gen X and stuff like that was Warren and Charlie, their perspective on stuff. And, you know, it's kind of, there's a little bit of Kabuki theater going on where they like ask different questions because Warren and Charlie want to talk about those things. So it's like, okay, well, here's, you know, you know, Manish from India who has a question and Manish asks, what's the likelihood of what, what would Berkshire Hathaway do if there's a nuclear war? Literally, that was the question. I was like, who asked this question? This is like, but it turned out Warren and Charlie really wanted to talk about it. Charlie had like some jokes prepared and like Warren and those guys, but it was interesting kind of watching the generational difference where those two guys were adults during world war two. Mm. Like it's a totally different generation from my generation or your generation where like they grew up during the red scare, like like Khrushchev and those guys pointing nuclear missiles from Cuba, like just a different reality. And to them, like the idea of nuclear war seems pretty real to yeah. you or me. Like it doesn't seem very real to me. Cause I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like they stopped doing air raid, you know, drills when there was no more like stop, drop and cover. Like by the time I was a kid, everybody got over that. But you know, back in the sixties, fifties, like they were terrified and it still resonates in the way these guys act. And you also see it in like, the way ba- the the folks that grew up in the Great Depression, mm. the echoes of how they act and the lenses that they use to look at the world now are entirely different, right? Like Warren and Charlie don't use debt. Well, why don't they use debt? Well, because when they are, during their formative years, banks were not to be trusted. Margin basically ruined the country in the 20s and it like resonates back. Um, and it's just totally fascinating to see the echoes of that as they started to talk about, okay, well, what are we going to do about Geico's business? Well, they're using a lens that is totally based on how they were when they were kids and the world that was surrounding them at the time. Just totally fascinating. That is wild. And what do you think is the the lens that people are going to look at the world through because of COVID and 2020? Like, yeah. how how is that going to impact behavior and shape generations in the future? Yeah. Look, I'm not an expert on this for sure, but I'm watching it happen real time with my kids. Um you know, one of the things I was told, which is fascinating, is the teenagers growing up right now, they are echoing the behaviors of my generation, which is Gen X, right? And so this, for example, is the, um, is the first generation to view their parents as peers, as friends. Mm. That's one of the things they talk about it. Because what's very different was my generation is echoing how the generation that raised us act, right? The boomers acted a certain way with us, right? And it was like, okay, well, like, look, we're going to workaholic like crazy. That's what the boomers said. And Gen X said, nope, institutions are not to be trusted. And now you've got this situation where, like, the the kids these days, literally, like, I looked up one day, and you know what my kids' wardrobe is? They're teenage boys. It's all my clothes. Oh, they just, wow. They just walk in and take my stuff because we're friends. This is so interesting because... I recently saw a trend on TikTok that was like my mom trying on my clothes and look how young she looks because of that. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> like and you're you're echoing that as well of wow. And so like does that mean that 
the generation that's coming up is going to believe more in institutions or more distrust because i the way i view the world is like the world is going more and more distrust of institutions but then like your generation how i think about it is like they trusted institutions in a way yeah or is that my parents who Uh, are in their early 60s so this is i mean this is all generation generationalizing but the the boomers the boomers um theoretically trusted institutions the most I grew up in a time in the 70s and 80s when institutions were not to be trusted, right? Because we saw the unraveling kind of of corporate America, and we saw that at the end of every school day, we were left on our own while our parents were off working. So we saw that you could only really rely upon the self. That was who, the self and the connections that you have, right? And you'll see you'll see every Gen X you kind of know, like we have like, if you asked every Gen X, like, okay, something goes wrong in your house, burns down, give me the five people you're calling in a row. They'll be like, burp, burp, burp. they all have that. They all have that figured out, right? Because they don't trust any other institution, but they know they can trust this neighbor or this person or this friend. Hmm. Um, you know, I think it's very, it's, it's going to be interesting to see with Gen Z. I don't know what the prediction is on it, but my generation does not trust institutions at all. I do think that you're seeing an interesting transition where, um, well, here, let me ask you a question. Which, uh, what brand or institution do you trust the most? In what context? Like you, you're going to give your money to somebody or you're going to, you're going to trust that they're not going to share your information with somebody else, or they're going to do the right thing by you. Friends, friends yeah. or, but that's not an institution. So like, a, yeah. like an organization. Well, I would say like Joe Rogan is the first person to come to who do I trust that's like going to yeah. give me like actual information. Yeah. Yeah. Is like more Joe Rogan than CNN. Yeah. hundred percent. That's how I view it. Yeah. hundred percent. So this idea of, of people there, but I think you ask a lot of other people and they'll tell you, I would trust, they would trust Apple. Apple. Like, yeah. 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 That, that makes sense. So it's this idea that we've entered this crazy time where people are starting to trust commercial institutions to some extent the way other people used to trust the government, like the silent generation, the generation before the baby boomers, mm. like a lot of them used to put a lot of trust in the government and believe in the organization thereof. And now you look at what a lot of people are doing. They're like, yeah, I trust Apple or I trust Amazon. And you'd be like, well, why would you trust them? And it's because everything about them in terms of the way they're operating is very much like transparent. Mm. What, why does Apple exist? They're making money for shareholders. We can trust that. Why does the government exist? Why does the Democratic Party exist? Why does the Republican Party exist? You don't know what's going on in the smoky room, so you, you've learned you can't really trust that stuff. Yeah. So it's really, it's really interesting. And I think it's also, you'll see people like Joe Rogan, um, and to some extent, even me. It's like, okay, like you want to be trusted in media? Like, go be your real self. And like when Joe Rogan starts recording his podcast, like, like you'll see him like, like, hey, Jamie, this, or like, they start recording before they recording. Like, it's like, you're welcome to his living room. It's really genius that what he does, like, it's all very calculated. Yeah. And so take me through that of your decision to go into media, to go into Twitter. It's funny to call it Twitter media, right? Yeah. Like when you talk about it as like being yourself, like, but that's media, that's the modern day media. But why do you decide to start putting out your thoughts on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was bored during COVID. So like most things, you know, like most things, my creative process is not like have a big vision and figure it out. It's like, well, I'm just going to go start stumbling that way and see what happens. But um, I think Twitter hit me at a place where um, where Twitter is very hungry for people that are comfortable being who they are. Um, Twitter is also a place that 
other people talk about it being very toxic. It's actually very nice to me because I am just like, I, I intentionally never say anything mean. I don't get into arguments. Like, it's just like, so everybody else's complaints about their timeline. Like I don't <laughs> at all. Like, I'm just like, but it's actually who I am. Right. Like I don't, I don't have that mean bone in my body anymore compared to the 37 year old I was. Right. And you still see angry people on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. But, so in, at 37, you were mean or mean to yourself? Uh, both. Both. Wow. Yeah. But more so like I would, I would be okay. Like grinding on other people or being, being mean or grimacing and whatever. Gosh, I can't imagine you doing a mean thing today based on your disposition and how you present yourself. Uh, it's no, fascinating. I'm not, I have real trouble. I don't like conflict. <laughs> it's actually one of the things I really have to force myself to do is like, like have hard discussions. Like, oh. and it's something I've gotten much better at because I would shy away from them or passive aggressively deal with them. And anyway, just coaching and becoming a better person. I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, back to Twitter and your questions around all that, like, and then I think Twitter, it hit into a great vein for me, which was, you know, I love teaching. And the more I saw that I was able to help other people, like there's this karma bank that Twitter offers to you where like every time I deposit one util of stuff, I get 10 back. Right. And it's like, you know, like, and I see it like just in this, like you and I get to hang out and you're like a cool guy. Like I'm excited about having this conversation and we're going places nobody else has gone with me. Like, that's like quite an honor. And it's like, but why did I do that? Well, because I wrote this thread that, you know, cause it seemed like fun to write it about Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. So that's kind of the, where it's all ended up. Um, and I'm, I mean, it's a ton of fun. I really enjoy it. One thing you said, interestingly on a different podcast was that you expected it to be more of an external communication tool, you getting your word out to the people who you didn't know, I guess, in the world. Yeah. And that that's obviously happened. But one unexpected benefit has been the internal communication of people who work for you who are like, oh, this is what Michael thinks about this, this, and this. 100%. Yeah. Well, and I think two things happen. One is like, I read an article about Zuckerberg, like they asked Zuckerberg, like, why are you doing this meta thing? Like, why are you talking to like, what it seems, why don't you just have an, a town hall instead of ruining it? He's like, no, no, this is the only way I can really reach whatever 50,000 people he has working there at Facebook. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Well, just to, just to point out that what he did was he went on a bunch of different podcasts yeah. and those podcasts were the ones that meta employees actually <laughs> listened to. Yeah, no, he was on Tim Ferriss, Rogan and, and that, or, and, um, Lex Freeman. And so because of that, people heard what he actually believed about yeah. those topics. So I just wanted to clarify that. hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, but then also like, so I do this exercise every year where I ask my business coach to go help me, you know, identify blind spots by going to work for the people going, going to talk anonymously with the people that work with me. So confidentially, not anonymously, mm -hmm. and they work with me closest and to get feedback to help me identify, okay, well, what do I do? what can I do better? Right. What are my gaps? What am I missing? Cause you know, I think, uh, I think everybody, it's easy to identify the things you're bad at and that you know, you're bad at. And then there's the blind spots that you just don't understand. Right. Like just, there are black box that you just put that in front of me. And there'll be a lot of times where my business coach tells me stuff and he's like, okay, well, what they're saying is this. And I'm like, Nope, don't understand that at all. Nope. Doesn't make any sense. And then they're, they're saying, and then Two or three meetings later, I'll be like, oh, I think I got it, right? I think I finally got it. And so he can become that translation layer for me to help me become a better person based on the data I'm getting, right, um, from him. 
And so he said, he's like, you know, the transformation I've seen since you got involved in social media is people feel like they know you better and it's the people that work with you. And so that was the eye opener there. It's like, oh, like, like the people I work with are like listening to this stuff. So, hey guys, how's it going? You know, like, I love you all. Please don't quit. <laughs> that That's wild. And, and so like, I want to point out though, what, what are the things that you don't understand when the business coach says to you initially, like, you need to work on this, this, and that, like, what about that whole process don't you understand initially? Um, so as, I mean, here's an example. Like if you told me, um, you told me, Michael, like we need you, we're hiring you for this job. Your job is to go um, uh, develop relationships with this big corporation and work your way into doing a strategic partnership with us. Okay. That is something where it's like, like right over your head. I have no clue how to do that. Zero clue. And you know, like that's why you look at maybe every organization I'm involved in, we have no kind of that type of business partnership kind of stuff. Like, it's just like, we don't do it. Cause to me, that's like just the most foreign thing possible. Like I just don't understand how to do that. Right. And so what he will do is point out things like that, where it's like a black box that just, I don't have the capacity to actually understand and he has to work over this you know course of hours to actually help me understand it and that's kind of what i'm trying to articulate i'm trying to think of an example where he's done that maybe i'll remember one but like but that kind of that idea where it's just like a black box that because of the way i'm wired it's basically just impossible for me to actually understand it unless he really spends a lot of time helping me translate it like from a foreign it's basically a foreign language makes sense well what would you recommend to somebody who's in the position of, okay, I'd like a business coach, but I'm just out of college. And obviously that's something that could be helpful. Where should they go? What should they do? What should they look for? Should it be friends or what, what's your recommendation to somebody who's in their early twenties and doesn't have the means to afford one or later on in life? As yeah, hundred well? percent. Yeah. I think, you know, that's where a business coach, a business coach just isn't the idea of a single person in my mind. It's also who you surround yourself with. Right. And, and who do you surround yourself with in terms of their ability to give you smart things that are going to be insightful to you? And then also I think really important is what is your set of tactics and approaches to get kind of information out of them. Right. And so that can be everything from, you know, inviting them directly. Hey, what do you think about this? Or what feedback do you have? Um, you'll see me do little, t little tactics like that on Twitter, right? Where I'm like, I'll write a thread and I'll be like, not sure I have all this right. What do you think? Right. And like, we, we did that like before the show, I showed you my AV setup and how it got better from the beginning to the end, because I invited people to come in and criticize me. And I think you can have that disposition with your friends where you're like, how did this go? And you know, you can do that in, um, do that in meetings as well. So one of the habits that EOS has, um, and then we like to do in all of our meetings is at the end of the meeting, you rate the meeting mm -hmm. and you say, okay, what was the scale of one to 10? If it wasn't a 10, you have to tell us what would make it better. And that does two things. One is it gives you actual concrete data that you can work on for next time in terms of tactics. And the second thing is it resets the attitude of the entire organization to understand, hey, this is a learning organization. We are all imperfect beings. And you can basically create those habits, I think, in a very strong way to get more data in terms of how to make yourself better. Because it's a real problem with American culture, right? Like we act like we're direct, but we're not actually really direct. Hmm. Actually, much more interesting is the way the English do it. Have you hung out with any English people? Some, but yeah. not enough to understand the culture. <laughs> so a great example, a great example of the English people that, that 
that, and I hang out, my two best buddies here in San Antonio are both Englishmen. One's a plastic surgeon and the other one is a, runs a healthcare company. And routinely they'll be talking and joking with each other. And I'm like, look guys, you need to start speaking English because I don't understand any of this. I mean, they're saying English, but it's a bunch of stuff I don't actually understand. But like one of the examples that I like to talk about of English kind of saying things, but not actually saying things is like, um, well, I can't say that story, actually. <laughs> but it was like, uh, one guy was overeating in a situation okay. and another one's mom said, oh, wow, are you going to eat all that? And you know, like, that's quite the plate of food, which was English code for, and they all understood exactly what it was. The Americans did not get it because we're like ostensibly too direct. But at the moment, like every English person at the table understood, are you going to eat all that? You fat, whatever, because <laughs> the person was unfortunately not managing his weight very well. And, but it's a situation where I think the English, to some extent, they don't directly come out and say things. Like if you give a talk in English and they walk up afterwards and they say, that was a very interesting talk. That is code for it. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Really? So anyway, that's, I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit, but there's some funny Twitter accounts about this. But that's one of the challenges in, you know, the English will, to some extent, they say it without saying it, but it's very clear, like when they're telling you stuff and you get feedback on things. Um but here in America, like it's one of the tragedies going on. Like everybody's so worried about each other's feelings that we don't ever, ever actually slow down and like give each other help. Right. And the love that comes from helping the other person be better. So you have to figure out ways to surround yourself with people comfortable with that and give them a safe space to be able to communicate that. And you have to invite it if you want to get any of it. And that's why I started doing this annual review process was like, I was, I wasn't getting enough data. Like my business coach would be like, how do you get better next year? I was like, I don't have any data. Let's go get some data. And so I've started to get much more aggressive about, I want negative feedback. Like give it to me. Cause that's how I'm going to get better. That's how I'm going to do better next time. And that's part of the whole kind of, kind of goal of overcoming that American tragedy. Well, it reminds me that it's the mix of curiosity and humility is asking for feedback directly and saying, what could I do better? Yeah. hundred percent. Th- that question is both curious and like, I don't know everything. And because of that, it's going to lead to improvement and going to make people happier. You mentioned before about the EOS methodology. I'm curious, what is that? So EOS is um, is one of these kind of business operations systems, right? Um, and there's dozens of these things. And it's basically the idea that every business tries to do the same things if it's going to run well, right? You're going to have um, high-performing meetings. You're going to have planning. You're going to have a vision. You're going to have a mission. You're going to have all this different stuff. You're going to have a competitive strategy. Um, and so, and then you're going to set goals, right? you like all kind of companies do these same things. And so EOS is one of these things that has taken all these kind of common ideas and put them into a system that I really describe as basically like business paint by numbers, where it's like, okay, well, like here's some worksheets, fill out these worksheets, right? And, you know, at the core of every single business is a front and back page, front and back page of one piece of paper, right? And it's a one page strategic plan. And so there's lots of systems that kind of do this. And basically what EOS does is it has you basically fill out these systems, follow these rules, fill out these forms, and you stop worrying about like, what kind of, what are our meetings going to look like? And you spend your time worrying about like, what's going to make our customers happy. And so I use that throughout my whole universe where it's just like, okay, here's this $10 book read this, here are these forms, we're doing it this way. And for me, it's very powerful because I have a common language and I know like at any time I can go walk in there and be like, show me your VTO, which is the one page strategic plan. And I can know precisely what that business is doing from this week up to 10 years from now because it's all put into that one front and page, front and back of a single piece of paper. What does VTO stand for? Uh, Vision Traction Organizer. 
vision traction organizer. Yeah. So yeah, when you build a system like this, you have to take ideas that are very common and then you have to give them specific trademarkable names so that you can sell it. <laughs> so it's a one page business plan. Gotcha. And basically at the front, it starts with kind of your core values, where you want to be 10 years from now as a company. And typically you define one or two numbers to do that. It could be like revenue or company size. And then it ties that all the way back to on the other, other side of the page, all the way back to what are the goals we're trying to achieve this quarter and how are we measuring success? And where it's very powerful is like most things, you know, it's kind of the, if I'd have had more time, I'd have written you a shorter letter type thing. Um, it forces you to be very brief. And the best VTOs are actually much fewer words than you think. They're several hundred words, but they're very precise in terms of the words they use, the numbers they use, and the economy of getting rid of everything that's not essential. And do I have this correct where you saw this in a business or you saw this in the business world and then you were like, I should just do this for my personal life too. Yeah. So take me through that process of going from business to personal in EOS and yeah. VTOs. Yeah. Well, so I went through, I think a period in my thirties where I was very busy um, and I was heading directions, but I kept, I'm very good at like changing the goalposts. Like I'll be like, okay, well this is what I want to do now. No, this is what I want to do now and moving here and there. Um, and I wasn't good at being self-disciplined to be like, okay, this is where I'm going. And some people do that naturally. You know, I've met people who are like, my whole goal in life is I want to be a general in the army, right? And they, they've, I see them when they start their goals to do that when they're 12. And next thing you know, 45, like they figured out how to get there and that's all they worked on. I'm not naturally wired that way. I'm too shiny objecty. So I knew I had to come up with a system really to overcome that and create more direction to go consistently. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I'll just like, you know, Shiny object. I'm very good at shiny object. Um, so, you know, I, I got very familiar with using this EOS system, first running it in the family business and then running it in substantial businesses and then using it in everything I'm involved in. So I was like, you know what? These are some really good ideas. Like, why don't I just fill out this form for myself and see how it looks? So I took the form and I removed a good chunk of it that wasn't really that essential for me personally, but I did the same thing. Like I picked a 10 year goal. So I have a 10 year vision of where I want to be a decade from now. I chose a net worth goal and I'm like, okay, I want to be worth this much in 10 years. Um, and I'm still working on that. So maybe I'll get there. And then like what my strategy is like, and I have a strategy and it, I had to fill out the sheet and it caused me to slow down and just think about it. And so I did that starting 2017. So I've been doing that for five years now. Oh, wow. It, what do you think about like five year and 10 year goals in general? I assume you're a fan of it since you put it on your sheet but how i've always thought about it is like i don't know where i'm going to be in in five years let alone three so like how can i plan effectively for that yeah because the world is constantly changing and what i'm doing today wasn't possible 10 years ago so if i put down all right i want to be a podcast host 10 years ago which i didn't even know that that was a thing that you could do it's like i i didn't know right, right. so like is, is that something that because you have greater understanding of yourself that allows you to do better or like would you recommend this for somebody in their 20s as well i think that i think that um well we're back to the middle-aged white guy problem <laughs> again which is like look like i knew who i am now yeah like i know who i am i know who i'm gonna be like i've got a good idea of stuff like um i don't i know i'm not gonna be a guitarist <laughs> it's really bad at it um I am learning to speak Spanish, though. It's really good. I saw it's, that. It's the thing I'm most proud of. I saw that I'm, on your reflection list. I'm super proud of it this year. Anyway, we could talk about it. Yeah. Um, if you want. If not, that's fine, Yeah, too. I do. But the, um, 
but yeah, so I think it is kind of the middle-aged, middle-aged man kind of thing that's easy for me to say. I think there's a lot of value to doing it at any, any stage in life. I think where somebody who is younger in life should be okay is just saying, look, I've learned a bunch of stuff and I'm going to radically change it. Like, I think that's okay. I think it's a mistake to not set long-term goals um, at any age, right? And, and to avoid those type things. And I did, I did the other thing where I was like, kind of aimlessly like, the whole kind of idea, which I hear people talk about all the time, which I think is just utter horseshit, is the, um, oh, if you just have good habits every day, it all turns out great. And I was like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, 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 who thinks, I mean, just, okay, am I going to get to the top of Mount Everest and do anything really substantial just by, like, walking in a random direction each day? No, it doesn't work that way. Like, you have to have a goal and you have to be optimized for it. If you want to do something meaningful. If you want to just do yoga and whatever, like, fine. But if you want to achieve stuff, like, you have to have, like, a vision and a goal and go after it. And, you know, I think when you're younger, you should pick those things. But you should also be comfortable with learning very quickly, right? Your rate of learning right now is incredible. Like, I'm so jealous of you, right? Just like I listen to my kids, and they're like, literally, they're like, the other day, they had they were blasting the eagles in their room, The you know, the band. They really are like your generation. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, that, that was before my generation. Okay. Thank you, though. Thank you for calling me old. But, but, um, but like, my kids get to listen to the Beatles for the first time. Yeah. Like, I'm so envious, right? It's just, like, so cool. Like, I remember when I first heard, like, you know, strawberry fields. And it's just like, wow. And that, that can only happen once. So the it's kind first of, can only happen once. Yeah. But it's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, yeah, like be comfortable. Okay. With that, that rapid progression of learning, that just means you need to move your goals differently than, than somebody at my age is. Yeah. That, that's helpful and, and understandable. What, what else, what have you learned from your children? Like, I think we often think about the, the parent teaching the child something. But I don't think we often think about the children teaching the parent something. And if you're attuned to being humble, it feels like you are, that you would have some sense on like what your children have taught you. Yeah. Well, it was always, it was always great because you'd be like, you'd be at your job and be like making big business deals happen and all this stuff. And you walk in and your wife's like, here, your kid puked, you know, (laughs) like take care of this. It's like, oh yeah, that's the way it's going to be. Um, you know, I think, I think I've learned so much about my parents and appreciation for them and my grandparents before them going through this process now mm. and watching, watching how much my parents implicitly invested in us to become the people we have. You know, I have a brother and a sister, so there's three of us. Like, I see how much we're doing for our children, and it's like, that, that learning is like, oh man, like I appreciate my parents so much more every day because like that sacrifice is enormous and, and super, super magical there. Um, you know, I think that kids are great because they also remind you how resilient like the world is. Like both my kids have had significant health problems, you know, through being young, one's going through stuff right now. And like, he's a great kid, like he's doing amazing. And he went through COVID and then he went through like being homebound for a period of time and it's still happening. And it's some of the stuff where it's like, he's 13 and like just being amazing. And it just reminds you like all at once, like we as humans are like so fragile, Mm -hmm. right? Like you and I could walk out and die right now, but all at once so resilient in terms of how magical it is. And it gives you so much of an appreciation for life to, to see that happen. Um, So I don't know. Do you feel as if you have greater perspective from being a parent? Uh, so it's really interesting. Have you heard the theory that uh, 
that parenting is like the world's greatest brainwashing? <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm, I'm not at that so, stage yet. Okay, so this is really fascinating. My my friend pointed this out to me. So he had, uh, he's one of my mentors. He had two twins under one year old and he had an adopted son under 18 months old at one point. So they had three children under 18 and they were all boys. Mm. And uh, he, he pointed out to me, you know, as, as when I was, I was younger and I was just, my wife and I were just getting close to getting engaged type stuff. And he goes, you know, this is all brainwashing. <laughs> and I was like, he's like, yeah, he's like, look at what the, look at what the Marine Corps does to indoctrinate people. And uh, I was like, okay, tell me more. He's like, okay, what do they do at the Marine Corps? They, um, they cross your boundaries of cleanliness. Kids do exactly that. Uh, they give you indeterminate kind of uh, information and uh, they scream at you at random hours of the night. Marine Corps does that. Kids do that. They interrupt your normal sleep cycle. They keep you from sleeping normally and put you out of your pattern. Marine Corps, kids. Like you just keep going down the list of everything that you do if you want to indoctrinate somebody into a community and brainwash them. Like it's exactly what child rearing is. Wow. So that's why I always think it's pretty funny. Like they go survey people and they're like, okay, um, you know, are you happier because you're a parent? And they all say yes. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're brainwashed, you sucker. You have no idea what's going on. Like, you, you just haven't figured it out yet. Well, there, there's an important nuance between happiness and fulfillment, which I don't think is often talked about. It's yeah. like our aim so often is to be happy. Everyone, like, we've put happiness on a pedestal, but we haven't put fulfillment on that same pedestal in society at large. Yeah. And so being a parent, obviously... Maybe you're not as happy, but potentially you're way more fulfilled. Yeah, I think that's a really, I haven't thought about that dichotomy. So do you think like you get to decide if you're going to be, I, okay, do you, do you believe the premise that you get to decide if you're going to be happy or not? Assuming you're medically, mentally okay. Yeah. Not depressed. I, I do think that. Do you think you get to decide if you're fulfilled or not? I think you can create the conditions to make yourself fulfilled. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder how much perspective, uh, perspective is really the the underlying thing around fulfillment. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, I think, I think it's easy for people to look at life and be sad no matter what, right? Oh, my airplane is delayed 45 minutes. You mean the giant tube of magic tube that was going to fly you across America in four hours for $250 is the Louis CK bit, but, but it's totally true. It's like so much perspective, right? And, you know, if you look at like the perspective that different people have, you see these people in horrible conditions or horrible situations and they're like totally happy. And it's like, well, why? And I think a lot of it is perspective in terms of you deciding what you're going to consider and how, and then how you're going to think about it. Right. And I think like people ask me, like, are you happy in San Antonio? And I'm like, I'd be happy anywhere. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I would be I would be a homer for whatever city I'm in, and I would be totally happy being there. And why is that? It's because I've decided to feel those two things. I've decided to believe them. Derek right. Sivers, episode 249. Sorry to cut you off. Said the exact same thing. Oh, cool. About New Zealand. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd be happy there. It's too beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. No, that dude's awesome. Super yeah. smart. Yeah, but but that's but that's a, an important perspective. But in terms of fulfillment, it's like you don't, do you believe that you can choose to be fulfilled? Yes. Okay. hundred percent. It's the same thing as happiness. Yeah. I think that, I think you, I think, mm. I don't think there's any thoughts that you don't get the option to think how you're going to think about them. Mm. 
I need to sit with that. You know? Well, okay. So, and it's clear that I want to make clear there's a distinction. You, you get to feel, and this is all Eastern kind of Buddhism stuff. Like you get to feel anything, right? You can feel sad. You can feel anxiety. You can feel jealousy, anger, nervous anxiety. Right. And so like I talked about it in the, let's talk about it, my anxiety of going to cocktail parties. Literally, do I feel anxious about going to cocktail parties? Absolutely. Am I going to be accepting of myself feeling that way and being okay with it? Yes. But am I only going to be okay that I'm going to decide how I'm going to feel and how I'm going to react to that emotion? I believe that everything is in that control of yours. You get to control every single part of that. And it's the difference, you know, the, the Buddhists talk about are the, the, the monkey mind versus the, the conscious mind, right? And most people conflate those two things and they, they let them run amok, mm-hmm. which is this idea of mindfulness. It's like, okay, no, I'm going to split and I'm going to tell that monkey mind it's going to think what it, it can think whatever it wants, but the, the sucker in charge is going to own, own the situation. I believe you get to decide what you, whatever you're going to think about that stuff. It's funny because you don't get to decide your next thought often, but you do get to decide how you think about that thought. 100%. And so for you, when did you realize you had a monkey mind? Uh, I started to read a lot of the kind of Eastern philosophy stuff. So um, there was a time where the uh, Dalai Lama was like super pop, like in the late 90s, like when Richard Gere was going over there. So I read a lot of his stuff. It was pretty good. Um you know, and then some of the other, it started to creep into a lot of kind of Western popular books, Zen and the Art of, Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You would start to see some of the ideas show up there. Um, there was a great book I read by a guy named Suzuki. It was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really- Ken Suzuki, is that his name? That may be, yeah. Uh, it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I took the ideas and I forgot the book. No, it's okay. <laughs> that's, that's the way it should be. Yeah. So we'll put those in the show notes. 100%. Is, are there any other particular resources you found valuable on understanding the difference between your monkey mind and your conscious mind? No, I think those cover it really well. Okay. Because there there does seem to be a, a level of peace to what you're talking about and to who you are and to how you present yourself. And it's so interesting to compare that to yourself 10 years ago, which you would describe as mean. Yeah. So it's just like, and you said you, d- you learned about some of those concepts in the 90s so what what happened like what other factors are at play for like such a a wide difference yeah no i think it's i think being a curious person and like 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 just i feel like i just operate like at a pretty high rpm of going through things and ideas and changing thoughts on it like i'm com- yeah. i'm totally comfortable moving from one idea to the next yeah um so like yeah, it's kind of like asking me like that's just who i am you know <laughs> it's like that's just perfectly normal like it's like you know and it happens with my wife all the time like we'll be in the middle of some conversation and I'll say X, Y, Z and, you know, and then we'll kind of pause for a second and I'll realize like I'm on four things down the road and she'll be like, okay, well back to this plan we were working, you know, we just talked about, I was like, oh yeah, you're still talking about that. Like I'm I actually moved on, you know, I think of something it's just, I don't know how to explain it. It's just how I'm wired. So one of the things you're on to the next is learning Spanish. What was into the the desire to learn Spanish and and what have you learned about yourself from looking at the world differently? Uh, I'm not as bad at Spanish as I thought I would be. Um, But it's really fun. I mean, so, and I've kind of stumbled into this. So we were in, you know, Marseille and and Paris over the summer. So we went, it was like a great time to go to France, by the way, because like all the Parisians 
are have been not had any tourists for a while so they're like american dollars come on in like welcome would you like a table like like so nice and my wife and i work really hard to like like fit in like we want we don't want to be the you know american couple that everyone hates or uh, something like that my, my buddies go and they're like the french are such assholes i'm like well tell me what you do well i go over there and they don't talk english to me i'm like well it's not supposed to work that way dude like <laughs> like like did you check and you know well you know and they show up and they like underdress for everything and like it's like my wife and i got on instagram and we like figured out okay let's we want to show the respect to the community and like be mindful tourists and all that kind of stuff and and be good and be good visitors and um so anyway, like it was so painful spending time over there. Like I saw, like I could have had such more of an opportunity if I'd spoken more than four words of French. And literally my French sounds like Elmo and John Wayne, like speaking French, like, you know, au revoir partner. Like it's like that bad. And, uh, so like we had a guide in Marseille and she turns out her husband is a, 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 a chef and like, she's very knowledgeable and it was like the hottest day of the year. And, you know, I talked to her about, you know, she actually does language tutoring. So now I started with her last summer. We do one or two sessions a week, 45 minutes. And it's all conversational. So basically fixes the way like, like school language is taught, which is a lot of grammar and stuff like that. And it's all about like, how do I like talk well, if I'm like navigating friendships or like tourism or whatever in terms of these other countries. So, so we do that and spend a lot of time there doing that. And then I read this book fluent forever, probably about two months ago. It's really great. Um, and it talks about some of the science and ideas of how to learn a language more rapidly and how to retain it. So like I have a whole flashcard system, uh, now that I do, and it's turned into like a video game for me where I'm like on there, like, okay, what is the word for surprise? Like, you know, how do I say like, how do I say like I made a mistake, you know? Um, and so that's all really helping to kind of grow my vocabulary, but I still sound like John Wayne and Elmo, <laughs> Elmo with a John Wayne accent speaking Spanish. Well, so th- let me get this right. The, the coach that you got is French, but te- teaching you Spanish. She's from the Basque country and teaches me Spanish because cool. she grew up speaking Spanish and English. So it's like Spanish, English, French, and she's married to a Frenchman. But what the coolest thing about it is, and I highly recommend this, is you get a tutor from one of these foreign countries and then talk about like how it's different. And so literally we'll have like these incredible conversations where she's like, okay, like uh, tell me how schools work in America. And I'm like, okay, well, here's how it works. Like, you know, you get to choose what school you're sending your kid to based on the things you believe. And she's just like, what? you get to do that? Like they would never work here in France. Like, okay. And like, tell me how the food system works in America. Okay. It works this way. And like, you get all your packaged food from here. And then the vegetables are sometimes she's like, what? That would never work here. You know, just like, and then we talked, spent a lot of time her sharing about like how business culture works Mm. in like these Latin American countries or the Latin countries, um, Spain, France and stuff like that. And like, she was like, oh yeah, there's a reason Americans can't do business here. Like you guys won't do the, you won't do the routine, right? Like, like for example, like, you know, you go to a business lunch here, um, like you sit down and like you get right to business and do your work over your food, you swallow down your steak and you move on. Does not happen. Yeah. It does not happen in, in Spain, for example, or France. Like you have to have the meal, then the coffee, then you can have a little talk about business, but the business actually gets saved for a later time. Like you just, but like Americans show up and they're like, okay, John Wayne, like, let's do this. So it's like, it's really fascinating to have a tutor from a foreign country 
because you can really start to understand like the total differences in some of these places. And there's some cool apps to do it. Like most, a number of my friends now have like tutors in Venezuela and stuff where they're like learning Spanish too. So highly recommend it. It's, and it can be very inexpensive. Wow. Did you, you, did you have any interest in learning languages before you did this, before going to France? Uh, I had two years of junior school Spanish. Hmm. So, and I learned how to conjugate tener, <laughs> just to have. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think I had a little bit of interest in it, but I never really got my mind set on it. And that's kind of a pattern with me. Like every two or three years, I'll just really, really get into something and I'll go, I'll go deep and then I'll get bored and then I'll move on to the next thing. So, so what you're saying is we only have you on Twitter for so long. I definitely could be, you know, it's really possible. Yeah. Are you getting sick of it? You're, you're over it. I d- there's part of me that's like feeling like I'm starting to run out of stuff to say, I'm like, Oh, all my good stuff is said, you know, but then it comes back again. So, um, you know, I think what Twitter has going forward, social media has going forward is like that, that positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. As long as that keeps going and like Twitter HQ and folks don't screw it up. Uh, I think it'll continue to be fine. So anyway, today was like huge. I've got like 2000, like threads going. So like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> I'm back. Let's I'm go. fully on the train. Yeah. Endorphin time. Let's go. <laughs> well, the reason why I ask about the language stuff is because I've started to realize that language is how we code our mind and how we code our mind is how we operate. And you must get a new sense or a new idea for all the ways we do things based on learning a different language. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think the, the one, another interesting thing I've noticed for that is like, there's this idea when you start to learn a new language, your primary language starts to suffer. Oh, really? So, yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's this phenomenon where you start to, your existing words start to get replaced with other words. And then last night I actually dreamt in Spanish. Uh, but it wasn't that interesting. You know, it wasn't like I was like, you know, on a beach in Ivanema or something. It was like, I literally was dreaming about practicing Spanish. And I'm like, okay, tener soltura. <laughs> That's good. That's probably what we were doing as children, but we don't remember it. Right. Like dreaming about the language and, and building memories. Cause that's, that's how we instill the, the truth of like what we're trying to get better right. at in anything. And we want to live, um, my wife and I have talked about spending time in Spain or Colombia or Buenos Aires or something like that for some period of time, or probably end up in Mexico. Oh, wow. So that's one of the things I think we'd like to do just to experience that. It surprised me since everybody, it seems like from looking at it from the outside that you're the mayor of San Antonio, it seems like. (laughs) It basically seems like everyone knows you, you're the go-to guy. If you want something done in the entrepreneurial business scene of San Antonio, you know everyone. That's kind of how it's presented. Yeah. Well, either that or there's not many other people on Twitter. (laughs) I mean, I wish our, I wish our elected officials would like get on Twitter and be real. Like I saw that guy, um, from Miami, right? Mayor Francis Suarez has come on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know he had him as good. That's awesome. Um, and you know, he's a politician, so it is what it is. And he's, but he seems like a really nice guy. He's tweeted at me and, um, (laughs) that makes him super nice. But like, if, I mean, politicians, like, it's so amazing to me. They just don't like like slow down and like, and it's, it's created such a green space for me in terms of being on social media where it's just like, Oh, like just talk about yourself and be real. Like, like people my age have a ton of difficulty doing it. Like I almost every single one of my friends is on Twitter, but never tweets a thing. Why? Never does. They just, they're just like either totally confused by it or totally terrified by it. Like, 
And I do think you also see people, you'll see people all the time that are like, oh, I want to build an audience on Twitter. And they're like three weeks in, they're like, this is so hard <laughs> because like I'm doing that on LinkedIn now where it's like, you're just like posting into the ether and like going onto other stuff and being like, great post, dude. Like, <laughs> nice work. Please forgive me. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, and it gets pretty daunting, but like people, my generation, like they just have such a hard time, like being real. Like, it's just, I don't understand it. It's very, it's very fascinating to me. Where does that stem from? I, I mean, there is the idea that, um, Gen X, Gen X was wired in a way where we would come home from school and we were the original latchkey kids. And like, you kept to yourself and like, like it was still like in the eighties, um, when I was growing up, it was much more dangerous, um, then than now, but it was like super overblown. Like every stranger was like going to give you candy and put you in their van and like super, I mean, it was a super terrifying time and kids were on their own a lot. So we've learned to be these very self resilient, like just keep our heads down, get stuff done. Don't get in the limelight type thing. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the way most of my friends are. They're just like, huh? I, I I don't I don't want to share that. <laughs> that makes sense, honestly. I remember there's so much of the advice that I was given as a child that today is commonplace, and it's like, all right, don't get in strangers' car. That's Uber, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> don't look at your screen too closely. That's an iPhone. Like yeah. all this advice that we were got, we were given. It's like even the parents are doing it themselves. So it's just interesting how what's acceptable changes throughout life and how the things that we're preaching today of what should and shouldn't be doing, how much of that is just social conditioning and how much of that is going to change yeah. in 20 years. Well, and like we talked, asked about my kids, um, literally my 17 year old will say, Hey, I'm going to go hang out with my friends and walks up to his room oh, and we're wow. like, okay, dude, that's not the way that that's not what that means. <laughs> <laughs> that means you leave in the house. Um, but um, that's like you ever see someone your age say like I'm gonna go hook up with my friends and you're like okay you're gonna make out with them like you're gonna like that's what my generation would interpret that as uh we don't say hook I mean I'm still young enough okay we, we excuse do me say, excuse me <laughs> yeah. how dare you call me old again <laughs> but um yeah no we um yeah it's kind of it's kind of bizarre watching the generations be very different um the other thing that's super interesting to watch is you know, what's going on with the baby boomers, right? Where these folks, like you're seeing them go through a transition of working so hard and being part of these institutions and creating them in many regards. And for many of those folks, that sort of work that they were doing being, and the money that they had being a source of personal meaning. And fulfillment. And fulfillment, yeah. And so now you're seeing, and I'm watching a number of them like do really well with it you know, like my dad is amazing. Like he's done an awesome transition to live like his best life, like period. And, uh, and then you're seeing some other folks that are like totally struggling with it. So it'll be curious. I'd be curious to see how, how many do it. I mean, how do you transition to a different, completely different part of your life? Like even for somebody in college who's listening to this and it's going to transition to working for the first time or starting a business, like that's a huge transition too. Like how do you, how have you found transitions to be most effective? Yeah. For me, well, not to be a broken record, but it's this mindfulness idea, right? Yeah. Like 
you have to accept like, oh, I'm going to this new place. It's going to be uncomfortable that I'm going to have to meet new friends, right? Or it's, um, I'm going to graduate college and it's going to go from being very easy to meet peers to incredibly difficult. And like I looked at my transition when we moved back from San Francisco to San Antonio, I went from a transient city full of young people, very vibrant people coming in and out. And we made friends like super quickly. There was always something to do. And then you come to a city like San Antonio and literally like my neighbors were like retirees. Uh, we lived in a nice neighborhood. So there was a spur like across the street, I lived across the street. Oh, wow. Steve Kerr. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. Steve Kerr lived across. Yeah. Wow. So Steve Kerr would be across the street. Their house was much bigger than ours. Like we were in a starter home and, uh, but he would be across the street and like during trick or treat time, people would go over there and he, they would give out like the $4 Snickers bars and we'd give out the little like tiny Jolly Ranchers and the kids would be like. What's going on? Like, <laughs> I was like, sorry, you need to go back to Steve's house. Um, but I moved in and it's like these people have kids and like, you know, the whole idea that you could have a friendship group just from being proximally located to people like that to me was like a huge shift. Like I was like, oh man, I hate it here. Like none of these people are my friends, you know, it's very different. And it took me a while to be mindful about that and think, okay, well, is this me or is this just like, I need to act differently to this situation. And back then I was still conflating that monkey mind with like, with my thoughtful mind and being like, Oh, like, no, the problem here isn't that I'm a jerk. The problem here is that I'm just like using the wrong strategy. Like I need to be more thoughtful about this. And so I think that comes back to that idea as well. Like understand your situation is going to be different, accept those emotions you're going to have, whether positive or negative. And then you just say, okay, well, how am I going to react to this and go in that direction? So for me, that's worked every single time. Um, I think I finally did figure out how to make friends as an adult. I can share that if you're interested. Please, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the tough thing is like, all the way growing up, um, from a kid to high school to college, um, you learn how to make friends how, right? You make it with the people that are in the dorm with you and right next door, right? So geographically or approximately located, you make friends based on who's nearest you. But then when you get an adulthood, it doesn't work that anyway, way anymore. You're in this massive menudo of people and you're, you're like me where it's like, okay, these people have kids. These people are retirees. This guy's a spur. Like I'm not getting invited over there. Like, and, no, and no offense to Steve Kerr, but he was like a super nice guy and his wife was wonderful, but I have nothing in common with them. They're, we're not going to be friends, like very different. Um, so what I learned is, like the key to making friends as an adult is you get out and you create activities or you go to activities and then you just start inviting everybody to go to everything. Mm. And so like now I, whenever I want to do anything, it's super fine. Number one, I just pick the thing I want to do. And then I just go invite like 30 people <laughs> and maybe, maybe everybody else figures this out, but like, you know, and then like if 90% of them say no, or they have kids or whatever, like I just, or they're busy with the kids. Like, I don't care. Mm. Cause I'm just like, Hey, you know what we're doing? We're going to the downhill mountain biking park. And if you want to show up, that's great. And maybe two people show up and worst case is I just go by myself and have a great time. And then like, I learned by doing that, going to my gym, um, going to do activities. I liked mountain biking, skiing, like I've, created friends and it's all around shared activities and interests. And, you know, that's, that's the way I've created strong relationships. And it's not this geographically thing. And we don't tell anybody this when you're leaving. It's like, cause you leave and you're like, well, wait, like, don't I just make friends with a person down the hall? No, no, it doesn't work that way. It's actually totally shifts when you become an adult. Yeah. But I really like that advice. And I, another thing that just popped to mind from you speaking is the idea of what do you enjoy creating and how can you find other people who also enjoy creating that thing? Right. Right. Like I like podcasting. So I'm attracted to other people who are also podcasting or writing. I love like writing. So I'm looking at other writers and trying to connect with them. And so it's like 
for somebody listening, it's like, what are the things that you yourself like creating yourself? And then who are the people who are also creating things similar that you could connect with? Yeah. I think it's an interesting way to do it as an adult. hundred percent. And that was like, I talked about the genius of Geekdom, that place here, which was designed to spurn startup and tech growth opportunity in San Antonio, mm. which has basically had two major successes that have both flamed out company called Datapoint and then Rackspace here. And the idea was how do we create more of like a tech community? And the, in, the insight that the Rackspace founders had when they put it together was, oh, we'll just build a building and then we'll invite all the tech entrepreneurs in the city because right now they're spread out everywhere. This is a huge sprawling city and we'll put them in one place and then magic will happen. And it turns out it did. Like a lot of really cool startups came out of it. And for me, like, I don't know if I'd still stuck it out in San Antonio if Geekdom hadn't existed. Like my whole network, if you tie everything back to everything I'm doing, like it all comes back to Geekdom. Everything except for the fireworks business. Wow. Everything goes back to Geekdom. Geekdom is what exactly? Uh, it is uh, a co-working space located downtown. Um, so you created this? No, or? no. The Rackspace founders did. Um, so after they were involved in Rackspace, they wanted to grow the community here to help with Rackspace kind of talent acquisition and, and community development. Mm. So they started it with their own money. Um, so Graham Weston and then a couple of the other founders got involved and then Graham's like a big, like the godfather of tech here in San Antonio. Hmm. Cool. Well, you're the the prince if you're not the godfather at this point. <laughs> I'll take whatever I'll take whatever title people want to give me. I like to end these podcasts with a challenge for people because you listen, you enjoy it, and then what do you do and what do you take into your life to do the next thing? Does a challenge come to mind for you from our conversation or something we haven't mentioned yet? Yeah, I mean, I think I think especially if you're in business, like I've written a few things that if I had to pick stuff that people should just read, um, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a thread on this idea of effectuation, which is a different type of startup methodology. That's not very well known, but if you talk, if you look at my kind of like stumbling through life, finding cool stuff, um, exploration style of entrepreneurship, like it's super powerful. Um, and if people are interested in something that's different than lean startup or different than kind of the classic waterfall model, I think it's a cool third alternative. That's maybe not as risky, but still super, very interesting and lucrative. So I would challenge people to take a look at that if they're interested. Absolutely. So we'll link that down below. I appreciate you so much for your time, your wisdom, your kindness and generosity. I, I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you over the past hour and 45 minutes. And we will put your Twitter down below. Is there anything else you'd like to cover? Any topics we haven't covered? I know I gave you a, a long sheet of stuff. Oh, yeah. Huh? No. I think it's great. I would love to pitch. Uh, I've spent the last six months building a course on holding companies. So uh, Mirko, who is the producer of it, would kill me if I didn't promote it. Of course. But uh, it's under pre-sale now. It's uh, holdco.girdley.com. I've put in everything I know about owning multiple businesses and running them at the same time uh, into there. And it's uh, the complete hold code course. So um, I could use your money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who should be purchasing this course? Who is it intended to help? So it's optimized for anybody that wants to live kind of the lifestyle I've talked about of owning multiple businesses and doing the things like on a day-to-day -day basis to run them and, and, or to find the right people to run them and then to support them and, and do basically live kind of the same lifestyle I live in terms of stuff. So you could be somebody that's getting ready to, to buy your first business or starting your first business, maybe a cash flowing business. And then you would be having a vision of buying more and acquiring other things and having those under your portfolio over time. So really tried to do it in a way, which is pretty tough starting 
for people who are pretty new with mm. kind of business type things, um, maybe with a zero to one kind of situation for their first business, but then also people who are kind of going from one to two to three to four kind of businesses as well and gives you a whole playbook in terms of how to do that right, how to do that well, and how to avoid a lot of the mistakes that, that I made over the past 25 years. Sounds very cool. And uh, I really appreciate you coming here, talking about it, talking about everything you've spoken about. Thank you so much for your time. And anything else? No, I think that covers it. Anything I missed? No, I think we did a great job. <laughs> Should we rate the meeting? <laughs> Is that what happens at, at the end of Google Meet? You rate it? Uh, yeah, no. Well, you'll actually, actually like say on a board deck, we'll have a slide at the end where it's like, okay, closing, rate the meeting. <laughs> and literally it's an activity um, where you go around and each person says, rate the meeting one to 10. Um, and then um, if it wasn't a 10, what's better for next time? And we'll hmm. make notes of those and then create action items of what people should do the next time around. Oh, wow. Um, and in theory, each meeting gets better every time. And they call, at least for e EOS, they call it a level 10 meeting because it's like, it's the the most productive meeting of your week, right? It's like we pack that much into 90 minutes. And so we do that for board meetings. We do that for all kinds of work meetings as well. It's a good little nugget to do if someone's going on the rest of their day. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate you. Sure.